0: Chris Cleave is a journalist who has worked for the Daily Telegraph. His first novel is Incendiary, the story of the aftermath of a terrorist bombing in London, published the week of the terrorist bombings in London. Your novel has aspects of a dystopian future history that has or hasn't come true, and there's some very science fictional imagery in there, what you call the shield of hope. Tell us a little bit about those aspects, how you deploy them, and were you thinking in terms of a somewhat of a science fiction novel because you are writing about the near future
1: yeah i've always really liked science fiction and it's got a bad reputation you know but i think at best it's a way of depicting an alternative reality happens to be said in the future because that's probably the easiest place to set an alternative reality but what it should do is like resonate should 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 sound quite deep notes in our psyche and tell us about what it's like to be human and that's why um You know, the sci-fi that I really admire is like Philip K. Dick, which is, you know, sure, said in the future, but really it's about paranoia. (laughs) Um, It's about strange kind of angst, or or I love that sort of Brit sci-fi. You know, George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, that kind of thing. It's social comment, as well as it is prognostication about the future. I wouldn't put myself anywhere near their league. You know, those are great writers, and they're writing, you know, a long time in the future, and... If you read George Orwell now, it's uncanny how much of the language that he developed and how much of the sort of the way of thinking that excuses the most ex- extraordinary atrocities, how that has become common parlance now, and people don't even realise. You know how Orwellian the, the public debate about these things, like terrorism, has become. You know, the first thing that happens is that they manipulate the language. By manipulating the language, they they start to own the debate, both sides of the debate it's extraordinary so i't I wouldn't put myself in the same league as as like um you know a philip k. dick or, or um a George Orwell. They're just head and shoulders above, but what what I think they do that's interesting and what I've tried to do is to to look at the language, and I think that's the most powerful thing in sort of writing about the near future or science fiction or whatever you want to call it is to try and anticipate what they're going to do with the language in these situations. So something like the shield of hope is a a really, you know, it's a good example of what I'm trying to do. You take something that's entirely negative, entirely miserable, entirely depressing, and you call it the shield of hope, and suddenly it becomes a positive symbol. But because the... Nomenclature is so unsubtle it actually the effect is just frightening. I, I saw some of this after um, the eleventh of September as well actually, and this is to take nothing away from the reaction of, of New York as a city, which was an extraordinarily good reaction to an extraordinarily awful thing. But you know in the immediate weeks after it, there was these Orwellian turns of phrase where victims became heroes and you know the, this this kind of thing i 'm I'm, I'm really interested in how. Important it is to call things what they are, especially in the aftermath of an atrocity. Because as soon as you start to prettify the language, as soon as you start to use different constructions, then you know your society becomes a
0: science fiction, and I think you know science fiction should stay in books. One thing that science fiction writers sometimes try to do is to describe a dystopia, a negative outcome in the future, and by thus describing it they hope to prevent it. On the other hand mainstream literary writers will sometimes shy away from describing something negative in the fear that it might happen. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about what led you to create this dystopia that you create and how, you, how it felt afterwards to have what was once a dystopian vision become, in a sense, true. And in a sense, also, it's an alternate history because things haven't gotten quite as bad as you predicted, at least not yet.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I'm really pleased to report that the reaction of London to a real tragedy has been very measured, has been proportionate, and it's something that I've actually been quite proud to, to witness. Londoners have been amazing. I don't know if you can compare something that that is fiction, you know, about a, a possible future with a reality of something that has happened. But in as much as you can, it's true that the real London comes off very favourably by comparison with the hideously dystopian London that I postulate in the aftermath of what is in fact you know a massive terrorist attack. I I've been thinking very hard about whether it's right and proper to write about these kind of tragedies Uh, and that there's um there's one school of thought there's a french philosopher uh, jean baudrillard who almost suggests that we bring these acts of terror upon ourselves by imagining them onto the page and terrorists then basically read them as a wish list and make those wishes come true you know we put our darkest nightmares down and Baudrillard sees that as kind of a death wish that we have as a, as a society you know, that's expressed in our art, in our literature, and in our films. And the terrorists interpret that and and, and make it come true. This is his um, this is his theory. Now, I I see it in a different way. I mean, I think that these things start with acts of terrorism that art then responds to, to uh, in some ways protest the horror of it and in some ways ask interesting questions about how we should respond. You know, if, um, you know, Picasso's uh, painting, Guernica, is, is quite an interesting example of both. I, I find it easier to talk about things like that because they're so far in the past that you can get a historical perspective on it. I mean, Guernica, reaction to bombings in Spain, and, and it's the first time that civilian populations had been bombed from the air, and it was just the horror of that comes across as a, a terrifying protest in, in Guernica. It's a huge painting. I mean, if you go and see it in the gallery, it's like 40 feet across and 15 feet high or something. And it just its a big cry of outrage. Uh, it's almost like marking it down in history so that it should never be forgotten. But it's also a huge um, nod towards a future where this is going to happen more and how we should think about it. It's trying to give it a framework. And it's very modernist very futuristic painting in terms of the way it uses perspective I and mean, obviously this is all well documented but that's what i think art is for in the aftermath of tragedy so i have a very different interpretation from from someone like baudrillard who thinks that you know all of this art about terror is a death wish as an expression of negativity and dissatisfaction with our society that just plays into the terrorist hands on, on the contrary, I think a good book or a good piece of art or a good movie that has terrorism as its theme should make us should be a protest against the horror and should be an interesting new way to look at how we respond as a society. It should be an affirmation of what it is that we're trying to defend, you know, what it is that makes us human, what it, what it is that that makes us loving. But I think there's some ground rules. I really do. I think that as a as a writer, it would be hugely irresponsible to take a terrorist scenario that is uh, purely imaginative, right? I mean, I can imagine some horrible things that you could do as a terrorist, and there is no way that as a responsible writer I would write them down, because it is possible that there might be a terrorist out there who hasn't had that idea. So. You know, I think ground rule number one for a writer is that you have to take scenarios that already in the public domain are already recognised as threats, have already been turned over and over by politicians, by the security forces and by the media. So, I mean, uh, an attack on a football stadium, for example, in my book, it, it is based on a real scare that there was uh, last year in the UK of an attack on Manchester United stadium. This became such a big story for... Um, for such a long time as, as a potential scenario that that it defuses it as an irresponsible thing to write about, right? So I think, yeah, rule number one, don't give the terrorists any new ideas. I think rule number two is that your book does have to have something interesting and new to say about our response to terrorism. It can't just be disaster porn. You can't just write about the horror of it in in and of itself, that's not enough. You have to go beyond that. You have to write about the response to that as a society. You have to at least show some different ways that we might go forward as a society. I don't think a writer, certainly not a writer like me, can answer those questions. I don't know enough, but I can raise them in an interesting way and I think that's my job. So rule number two is you know you've got to have more to say than just talking about horrible events. Because otherwise you're just contributing to the terrorist agenda, which is to focus our minds on them rather than the good things about our society like love and laughter and happiness that we're trying to defend. So I think, you know, with those two caveats, rule one and rule two, I think it is possible to write in a very constructive way about terrorism and I think we should because I think it is the responsibility of everyone in society to think about what it is that they love and what it is that they want to defend and what it is that they want their society to be. And then, having thought about it, to respond in, in according to the tools available to them. You know, I'm a writer, so I write a story, but I'm not doing anything more or less noble than someone who's a builder uh, 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 and wants to build houses or, or or anything. You know, people, we think about what we want and then we try and make the world slightly more in that image. And I think that's good. I think it's constructive. I think you can write about a horrible event like a terrorist attack and have something constructive to say.
0: I'd like to ask you about the research you did on the war on terror and the people who are on the front lines responding. At one point in this book, one of your characters says it's as if the people in power are stirring up a hornet's nest, and it's his job to stop the hornets from stinging everybody else. Tell us a little bit, is that something, an attitude you found when you talk to people? It is. I feel very sorry for the security services at the moment.
1: They, they are good people doing an impossible job, and they really care about the job. They really want to do it. If you look at the police in London at the moment, not only did they respond magnificently on the 7th of July, but they've continued to respond magnificently. They are half dead from lack of sleep. They're, they're utterly overstretched, and they're being criticised from all sides for not getting results fast enough, for overreacting, for underreacting. In, in some ways, there's nothing they can do to appease this public demand for instant justice and total safety. In a way, you know, they have an impossible job. Uh, you know, uh, truly heroic people doing a truly impossible thing, which is to try and protect us all against everything and make us all safe all the time. Uh, It's an unreasonable demand that we put upon them. So given that it is impossible for them to make us completely safe, um, because there will always be some bad and dangerous people out there, and if we fortify the hell out of London, they will attack another city, and if we fortify the hell out of that, they will wait 24 months... (laughs) <laughs> and attack as soon as we drop our guard. I mean, there, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves permanently safe. We should do everything we can to make ourselves safer. The people I talk to in the police, don't know anyone in the in the sort of more secretive security services, so I, I haven't searched at that level, but the day-to-day people that have to go out and make us safer do say this. They They really want to do the job, they'll do it as best they can, they think they can get better at it, but they acknowledge this sense of fatigue that that something needs to be done about the cause of terror rather than this unrealistic aspiration, unrealistic demand being placed on them that the public should be completely safe. So Terence, the the, the uh, senior policeman in, in, in Sendery, is a really good man. He's a good guy. He's trying to do his thing. But he is driven half mad by this idea that the foreign policies of the country he's trying to defend are going to bring more and more and more enemies against the gates that he's trying to defend now i'm raising that question i'm not answering it you know I'm not a politician, and no no one voted for me so, so I can't comment on the on the rights and wrongs of you know the foreign policy of britain or, or any other country, but I do think it's the most important thing I can talk about at the moment. I do think it's something that needs to be addressed pretty directly in fiction so that the reader can make up their own mind. And I do raise this idea that the our own complicity in making people more disposed uh, to attack our Western cities has to be something we think about. You know, we, we should all have an idea in our minds about how how much we're prepared to tolerate things like Abu Ghraib happening, but before we start to put all of the blame for these things onto our own security forces? Oh, you prevented, you failed to prevent these attacks from happening. It seems grossly unfair uh, when we are continuing to vote for politicians who allowed uh, events to happen in places like Abu Ghraib that will be used as recruitment posters for fundamentalist terrorists for the next 150 years. And it's important that we as a society look at the two things we can do. One, make ourselves safer, sure. no more budget, more power for the security services, I'm all for it. But number two, examine our own consciences uh, and try and
0: reduce our complicity in making these things happen. Your novel deals a bit in conspiracy theory. You talk a little bit about the Coventry bombing. Tell us a little bit about that background and about how you feel the possibilities it plays out in today's world of terrorism?
1: It's a timeless question that people in power must have to ask themselves. To what extent do we allow a small evil to happen in order to prevent a greater evil? Any military leader has always had to sacrifice troops deliberately in certain places to divert attention from others. To do, to do bluffs, counter-manoeuvres, counter-attacks, to, to confuse the enemy. As we've moved from the age of like moving soldiers around on a battlefield into a more informational age, you start to get the dilemmas with which leaders in, in the UK and the US were faced in the Second World War, which is given that we have pretty good signals intelligence, right, given that we have broken the enemy's code, at what point do we act and thus reveal that we've broken the enemy's code? Right? The Coventry bombing in England is held up to be, you know, the example of that in the Second World War. As it turns out, you know, probably unfairly, you know, there's, there's pretty good evidence that Churchill didn't know that Coventry was going to be bombed and, you know, Ch- Coventry wasn't sacrificed. But it's an interesting uh, story because it kind of illustrates the point about, you know, that at some point leaders always have to do this thing uh, of saying, well, you know, who, you know, what smaller group of people must die In order that a larger group of people must live, I guess that's the hardest decision that anyone in in a position of real power, you know, life and death kind of power, that's the hardest decision they have to make. And I was trying to transpose that as a subplot of the book, not as a mainstay of the book, into the present day, because uh, certainly on the preventing terrorism side of things, it's got to be a question that comes up at some point. Right? We've got very limited penetration into these terrorists cells, terrorist networks. The sources that we have in them, therefore, are incredibly valuable. So at some point, leaders will have to ask themselves the moral question of do they try and prevent everything? Do they act on every piece of intelligence they have, even if that compromises their sources? Or do they preserve their sources against the possibility of the huge attack that we're all really scared of? Is that the one they're going to stop? Will they allow smaller attacks to happen in order to prevent the big one? And that's a very difficult question and one that you have to deal with quite responsibly, I think, as a writer. And it's certainly true that in the book I don't raise, uh, I don't answer the question of whether it's right or wrong to do that. And if you're asking me as a person, I think actually sometimes it is right that a few people can be sacrificed in order to preserve the many. And I, th- I thank whatever gods I believe in that I've never been called upon to make a decision like that because it would be incredibly hard. But I do think that it is an interesting question, and I th- I'm sure it's one that's going to be raised at some point in the next few years. And I'm sure it's a point that governments are asking themselves now and are thinking about, and it's the most difficult decisions they have to make, and I, um, you know, I, w-
0: I wish them luck with making them. Your novel plays out against the foreground of a love triangle, and there's some interesting twin imagery that goes on in that. I'd like you to discuss why you put this love triangle in there and talk a little bit about the twin imagery. I I am um, I like the idea that
1: even faced with total tragedy and disaster and the whole world turning into a real mess people are always going to be people and people will continue to be obsessed with their sexuality and with their desire to love and to be loved. And so this love triangle develops. It's actually sort of a love square. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, Terence Butcher, the policeman, is in it. This is a a strong figure that's almost a replacement for her strong, tough, reliable husband that the narrator lost in the attack. She slowly becomes closer to a a, a policeman, Terence Butcher, who she goes to work for. She's also uh, very very attracted to a man that's very attracted to her, Jasper Black, a, a journalist. He has a, a, a full-time girlfriend, Petra, and this strange sort of three- or four-way tryst develops uh, between Terence, the narrator, Jasper, and Petra. I, I like the idea that everyone involved there is in some way attracted to the narrator because she is interesting and she is different and she has a kind of gravity that draws people into her because she's so relentlessly stoical. She doesn't give up. She has this incredible strength and it comes across in her humor and in her love and in her weirdness. You know, I like the fact she's so weird. People almost can't believe she's for real. And that's why everyone's sort of slowly drawn to her. You know, e- even Petra who's very much, you know, a heterosexual woman. Uh, can't help starting to almost be seduced by, by the narrator and everyone's like falling for her all the time I like the fact that people can continue to do that even when faced with tragedy, I like the idea that you know even in a world that's responding to terror even not everyone is spending all of their time trying to go and get the baddies, we've still got to, to live our normal life and I quite like almost the absurdity of this love triangle being played out in the face of absolute horror, That that. That's why it's there, because I think it's absurd and because I love us for being absurd. Uh, And That's what what I think we have that's worth defending, just our ability to be weird and our ability to be selfish and our ability to, to love and to love things that are bad for us even when the world's falling apart and we ought to be going and getting the bad guys and, and being much more two-dimensional. I like the fact we're unable to be heroes in an uncomplicated way. That's what makes us heroes for me. But but there is this, yeah, there's this duality as well, you know, because one of the aspects of this love triangle is that Jasper, who's a middle-class, you know well-connected, well-off journalist, is uh, very attracted to his girlfriend, who's a good-looking very posh, fellow journalist, and is also very much attracted to the narrator, who's a good-looking, very much not-posh person. She looks very... and the two women look very similar, and that's not an accident. It's because I wanted to talk about the class system, which is still very ingrained in Britain. I I wanted to sort of show that just by an accident of birth, really, the lives of these women are preordained. And th- there's no way that the narrator could be anything other than a working class mum, and there's no way that Petra could be anything other than a, a well connected fashion journalist. And it's just the, the families they were born into, uh, this incredible inevitability of it, is as sad for the for the well off character Petra, as it is for the working class mum. You know, they both like cast a longing eye at each other's lives from time to time in the book, and Jasper, who is attracted to both of them is forced to choose really He's forced to choose between his attraction for someone who's very different in terms of background and someone who's very similar and that's why that's why the the two uh, lead women in the book resemble each other so much because they could almost be each other but for this accident of birth and so it's such and it's an impossible divide for them to cross it turns out turns out that we do still have uh, a class system in Britain which is Deeply entrenched. Oh, so deeply entrenched that there are even people who will deny it exists. And that's because they only know people from within their own social class. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. And I wanted to, to write about that in the best way I knew how. And that was to, to make this difficult uh, triangular relationship
0: happen across class divides. Chris, are you working on a new novel? Tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a new book. I'm hoping to to sort of really get down to it in the autumn, as I'm doing a lot of um, promotion stuff at the moment for Incendiary, which I'm enjoying. But I'm also you know I can't wait to shut myself back in my in my flat uh, and, and write again. This the new book. It, t- terrorism is is a big theme in it again. You know I don't think there's such a thing as a genre of sort of post nine eleven fiction. You know that implies that it'll go away. You know it's a genre and. Um, that terrorism is some sort of blip um, and, and it'll, it'll disappear and so will the literature that references it. You know. I think you, you need to keep it on the radar as a writer. You need to keep writing about it if you want to write a contemporary novel now because to turn terror off like, as a variable would be as dumb as turning off like gravity or, or irony or, or any of the other things that, that the characters of contemporary life experience. So it's still about terrorism. But it's much, it's much more in the background in the new book, and it's just become part of the furniture, and that's what I'm really interested in. It's like, OK, how do we live lives that are full of light and are full of laughter and are full of grace under the constant threat of death? That's, that's the big challenge that I think is facing us as a society now. Sure, to defend ourselves, to make us stronger, but also to remember what it is that makes it worth being safe, <laughs> you know, wh- wh- why do we want to live so much? You know, that's the question uh, I'm asking in this new book. I'm trying to do it in a way that's just funny. You know, my, my goal for this new book is to have a body count of zero, but still to, I hope to get some poignancy out of these characters and to make them, to make them funny and to make the thing build very slowly, but hopefully to leave a real feeling that there is something... To live for, there is something beautiful to defend. It is possible to fall in love like giddily and absolutely with people, and, and and that we can build a really strong society just through that love. And we can continue to live with a certain lightness, while still acknowledging the background of fear in our lives. And so, it's a book about you know, can people be noble enough to act responsibly about terror, but also fun enough? To, to live their lives in, in a devilish, devil-may-care way, which we're in danger of losing but being too serious about everything. And, um, so that's, uh, that's the new book, and um, I'm really enjoying, uh, really enjoying writing it. Thank you very much.
0: We've been speaking with Chris Cleave. His new novel is Incendiary. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very
1: much. I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed talking
0: with you. Thanks.